It's an entirely banal and simple act for many contemporary Londoners. To type, or even dictate, an address or location into a service such as Google Maps or CityMapper and be presented with a series of route options. Walking, cycling, public transport, driving. And not just these options, but their predicted duration, based on, for instance, real-time traffic data, and also, perhaps, whether the intended destination will still be open at the predicted time of arrival. If you use such services, you're probably just trying to get somewhere, so it's not surprising you don't pause to reflect on just how it is you are being delivered this information. And if you do, it's more likely you will think about the remarkably fast rise of the service or app that you're using it's rather less likely your mind will turn to the considerable organizational and technical complexities involved in pinpointing your geographic location, not to mention all the other urban data which allows the city to appear to you in digital form. But there is even more complexity to the networking of urban location, beyond the simple act of digitalized mobile navigation or its reliance on the machinations of devices and infrastructures that triangulate and pinpoint your location. It is also that, experientially, many of us have come to know urban locations or places via an increasingly digital and networked technological background, unthinkingly using search engines every time we want to find local information, partly or entirely conflating our urban neighborhoods with the spatialized polygons determined by the next-door platforms or the places named by moderators of influential local Facebook groups or choosing where to shop based on our tacit appreciation of the savvy local deli owner who presents newly arrived products via their Instagram account. These network technologies and services build on many locational media which came before. In time, they will be succeeded by others which we may or may not foresee right now. Such technologies may seem disruptive or even disturbing, but they can also be understood within long-standing processes of technological change through which we have learned and relearned to care for where we are, our place in the city. The Mediated City is a podcast series by me, Scott Rogers. In this series, we rethink media through the city and the city through media. We will approach the media urban nexus both old and new, analog and digital, and most of the time, we'll avoid these kind of categories altogether. Some of you listeners will be students in my module, Media Digitalization in the City, in which we'll discuss and work on these themes in more detail. In this episode, the eighth in our series, we explore some of the ways of thinking through the rise of digital and networked urban location. The key idea I want to get across is this. Location-based media exemplify the increasingly fundamental intersection between the internet and the urban. While we can and should understand how technical and infrastructural conditions make this intersection possible, we also need to think about the role of our own mediated urban placemaking practices. A year here and he still dreamed of cyberspace, hope fading nightly, all the speed he took, all the turns he'd taken in the corners he'd cut in Night City, 
And still he'd see the matrix in his sleep, bright lattices of logic unfolding across that colorless void. The sprawl was a long, strange way home over the Pacific now, and he was no console man, no cyberspace cowboy, just another hustler. But the dreams came on in the Japanese night. You're hearing an audiobook version of the 1984 science fiction novel Neuromancer, read by its author, William Gibson. It's a wonderful novel, one of my favorites, associated with what is sometimes called the cyberpunk genre. It was not a smash hit on its release. It was more of a slow burn, becoming especially popular into the 1990s. Its rise in popularity coincided with the rising accessibility of the World Wide Web, which seemed to indicate substantial changes on the horizon in, amongst other things, how ordinary people might inhabit cities and other places. In this context, many academics and other writers began to use a term Gibson coined in Neuromancer, cyberspace. This appropriated term became largely associated with an idea of digital spaces being disembodied, immaterial, or virtual, a form of spatial experience that was in a separate realm from and hence often juxtaposed against physical location. This idea still frequently crops up, most recently in some of the discussions we've been hearing about the supposedly imminent metaverse. Yet, as Mark Graham and others observe in a 2013 article in the journal Transactions of the Institute of British Geographers, three successive developments have moved both academic theory and the internet industry away from this kind of virtual-physical dichotomy. First, the rise of mobile internet connectivity, which particularly expanded with the arrival of smartphones. Second, the expansion of digital authorship, to include not only user-generated contributions about topics, but also the volunteering of information geographically locating these and other contributions. And third, the development of what they call the GeoWeb, which refers especially to the automated coding of web content to specific geographic locations. Eric Gordon and Adriana D'Souza e Silva summarize these developments as the rise of net localities. The teeming data of the internet, they point out, does not so much form a virtual space, operating in contradistinction to local places, but rather is the basic conditions through which we increasingly position ourselves in and in relation to different places. None of this is to deny that there is not at least some rhetorical value to the virtual-physical distinction. You might recall in the first episode that we briefly mentioned the work of William Mitchell, a prolific and early writer on digital and networked urbanism. He put forward the notion in his 2000 book, Etopia, that the digital city produces a new economy of presence, where we increasingly need to weigh up the costs and benefits between face-to-face and digitally networked interactions. This is not a useless observation today. It still reflects how some people describe their experiences of digital spaces. For Gordon and D'Souza e Silva, however, the problem with the virtual is it assumes that there is a normal or idealized urban space that technologies disrupt or affect. As they point out, quote, urban spaces are always mediated by technologies. Buildings, cars, streets, signs, these are all technologies that contribute to the experience of a city street. Net localities, while surely an augmentation of the traditional urban space, are comprised of additional technologies that help to form urban spaces. 
They produce unique interactions and, by extension, new context for social cohesion. Co-presence is not mutually opposed to network interaction, and as new technologies develop, drawing the line in the sand becomes increasingly difficult. End quote. In a 2012 article in GeoForum, Matthew Wilson notes that, Within this broader and longer-term digitalization and networking of location, location-based services have emerged as an important fixation for and subfield of the internet industry. Mobilizing location has become a keen subject of discussion, debate, research, and development, with very high economic stakes. As we'll see in the coming episodes, such location-based services have also prompted an ever-widening range of data-driven and platformized experimentation by various public and third-sector bodies aimed at efficient governance and sometimes enhanced public engagement. While location-based media or services are increasingly wide-ranging, we will limit our focus somewhat to location-aware mobile technologies, which often will mean the smartphone and its associated infrastructures. It is hard to understate the implications that the smartphone has had and is continuing to have for urban life. As Jordan Frith points out in his 2015 book on the subject, smartphones are clearly one of the preeminent forms of locative media today. So it is hard to avoid singling out this particular media device or form, even if we risk a kind of technological fetishization. For us, the important thing is to focus in a little and look at location-aware technologies primarily in relation to their ordinary implications. D'Souza, Silva, and Frith, in their 2012 book, Mobile Interfaces in Public Spaces, suggest this leads to three main areas of attention. First, how mobile technology users can easily access and interact with already existing location-based information. This could be really simple. For example, reading a Wikipedia article about a building or a facility that one is visiting. Second, how mobile technology users can create and share location-based information with others. This might include creating richer information, such as writing a geolocated restaurant review, or simpler information, such as permitting one's social media contributions to be geotagged automatically. Finally, and perhaps most importantly, Mobile technology users are increasingly experiencing information filtered in accordance with their geographical location. In other words, we have seen an ever-increasing extension of personalization, beyond a data-driven model of a user's identity, and toward users' embodied movements and situations. Let's begin with the infrastructures which make location-based media possible. This might sound like I'm immediately moving away from the focus I've just staked out around ordinary uses of location-based technologies. But thinking about infrastructures is important because without them, location-based media could never be so ordinary, such a seamless part of daily practice. Infrastructure is a different lens for us to think about urban media. So far in this series, Our focus has tended to be on individual artifacts or technologies, and the ways in which these appear to us or are used through particular urban locations. Or otherwise, how certain kinds of mediated sensory affordances, visual, auditory, haptic, olfactory, and so on, can encompass urban environments. Turning to infrastructure means attending to what might lie below, or beyond, or that which supports such urban media. Another way of thinking about this is in terms of dependency. 
The urban media we've been discussing are only possible on the back of supportive infrastructures. And only some of these are infrastructures that directly service communications or information transfer. So, sure, we can point to infrastructures such as underground fiber optic conduit or transmission towers sending signals through the urban airspace. But we've also discussed urban media in previous episodes relying on infrastructures such as transportation systems or standardized building materials and surfaces. A relevant point made by Nicole Starosilski in her 2015 book, The Undersea Network, is that existing infrastructures very often serve as a resource for further forms of mediation. Transport for London, for example, through its Connected London program, is laying more than 2,000 kilometers of cabling through existing London underground tunnels. This will not only provide for the first time 4G connectivity throughout the tube, eliminating London's most glaring so-called digital not-spot, it is also about using the tunnels as a convenient conduit for a new network of fiber-optic cabling that will allow 5G to be expanded all over the city via new, small transmitters installed onto buildings, light poles, and bus stops. This first of all points out why it is important to understand the material and technical makeup of urban media infrastructures, how they got established, how they have evolved historically, what sort of labor keeps them going, and all of the institutional arrangements and power structures that surround them. This is about more than physical connections like cabling. The connected London example I just mentioned is also about extending particular broadband cellular standards such as 4G and 5G throughout the city. Standards are just as important infrastructurally as cables. With standards like 4G, users with different devices, including visitors to the city, can all potentially send and receive data as they move around. But we can also point to a second, more phenomenological or experiential sense of urban media infrastructures. Infrastructures obviously depend fundamentally on physical technologies adhering to particular standards, but they also fundamentally depend on us forgetting them in our daily practices. This might seem like an odd way to think about an urban media infrastructure, but recall the example with which we started the episode of using a locative navigation app. That banal act is not only dependent on the material and technical infrastructure making route recommendations possible, it's also dependent on us not factoring those infrastructures into our use of the app, not just as individuals, but even at broader scales as well. In a 2019 article in the journal Mobile Media and Communication, Rowan Wilkin, who's one of the leading scholars studying location-based media, undertakes an interesting microhistory of one important location-based infrastructure, based on a close analysis of trade press reportage and patent documentation. He tells the story of Skyhook Wireless, a lesser-known company that played a surprisingly important role establishing the standards around how location was triangulated in the first generation of smartphones. Wilkin draws on the work of other mobile media researchers, such as Jared Goggin, to observe that, before smartphones, there were three main ways in which the location of mobile handsets was determined within cellular networks. First, the particular cell within which a user's handset was located could be identified. Second, you could measure how long it took a signal to travel from a handset to two or more network base stations. And finally, and probably the best known method, you could make use of GPS signals. Skyhook Wireless was established to develop a new approach for calculating the location of mobile handsets. 
this would seek to use the existing, complicated and overlapping fabric of Wi-Fi networks. Particularly in urban areas where GPS signals were often rendered weak due to buildings and tree cover, Wi-Fi provided a new and more accurate means of locating handsets. But it was also a technically complicated, laborious, and hence expensive task, made possible only by venture capital investment from the likes of Nokia, Intel, and others. Wilkin points out three challenges in particular. First was establishing a database which mapped Wi-Fi networks in different places. Skyhook Wireless adopted an existing practice known as war driving, which means recording information about Wi-Fi networks from a moving vehicle. While initially the company paid taxi drivers to carry Skyhook equipment within their cabs, once this proved inadequate, they developed their own war driving fleet. One interesting observation Wilkin makes is that collecting this data was possible because of the way Wi-Fi is designed its transmitters are inherently set up to interact with other devices. So through the technique of war driving, which involved making what are called probe requests, Skyhook Wireless had by 2010 mapped millions of Wi-Fi networks, covering an area comprising 70% of the United States population. The second challenge was keeping this often changing information about Wi-Fi networks up to date. If you think about this in an urban context, we are talking about devices strewn all over which might be moved around and disconnected, replaced or added by their myriad owners. And the final challenge was translating all this data and the capacity to process it into a locational standard robust enough to be pre-installed on mobile handsets. We are talking here about locative capacities and infrastructures, which are not only obscure to most users, but also which are best utilized when deliberately and well concealed. Wilkin observes how Skyhook Wireless caught a significant break when it struck a deal in 2008 to have its software added to Apple's first generation of mobile devices, including the iPhone, iPad, and iPod. But this break also seemed to set Skyhook Wireless onto the path of a strained and competitive relationship with Google, which had its own ambitions in the location-based sector, and at one point had attempted to access Skyhook Wireless's location database. What Wilkins suggests is that this difficult relationship was a key impetus for Google to undertake its controversial data collection exercise on the back of its Street View photography program. It's a bit of a saga. Google itself revealed that this had happened back in 2010 and it was investigated. It said it had all been a terrible accident. This one engineer had written this piece of software and that resulted in inadvertently them collecting this data from people's unsecured wireless networks. Something which, of course, you shouldn't do. You should have a password on your network. But it scraped up this data from their personal networks. All investigated and sort of put to bed again. But this year, America's regulator, a very powerful regulator, the FCC investigated, uh, imposed a big fine on Google, but also got them to admit that senior managers had known about this, that it hadn't been just one rogue engineer who who had had known about it, that there was wider knowledge about it in the company. As you've heard in the clip, 
One of the remarkable aspects of the well-publicized controversy around how Google used its Street View cars for surreptitious data collection was how it initially proclaimed its innocence. Google said that it was doing nothing more than other companies, like Skyhook Wireless. When they sent their Street View cars out to collect 360 degrees of street photography, they were undertaking the same so-called war driving. That is, simply collecting basic information, really just about the bare existence of specific Wi-Fi networks and associating them with the longitude and latitude. It turned out, however, that Google Street View vehicles were collecting more than this. They were also scraping payload data from unencrypted Wi-Fi networks. In other words, the content being transmitted. This is notable because it indicates how, while Google was clearly interested in improving its ability to pinpoint locations to ultimately make its Google Map product more robust, that was not enough. It also sought to gather geolocated data offering contextual richness. Unencrypted payload data could indicate what people do and like, where they like to go and when, in particular geographical areas. Information which goes beyond the location of a particular user, but allows for the filtered presentation of content by geographical positioning. Wilkin outlines how, around the same time as this controversy unfolded, Skyhook Wireless attempted to sue Google for anti-competitive behavior and patent infringement, after Google aggressively pressured Motorola and Samsung to exclude Skyhook's software from their devices. In the longer term, Google largely emerged from these controversies unscathed, becoming, as is well known, the clear leader in location-based services for ordinary consumers. Just think about how, in a relatively short space of a decade, Google's services have, for many, become a taken-for-granted and essential means for discovering, knowing, and navigating the city. You've hopefully been convinced to take urban media infrastructure seriously, specifically here those making location-based technologies possible. Let's turn now to a different and not incompatible way of approaching the networking of urban location through the practices and experiences of its users. The media theorist Sean Moores, in books such as his 2012 Media, Place, and Mobility and his more recent 2018 book Digital Orientations, has argued that media studies should, perhaps paradoxically, avoid media centrism. It should focus on how media, and specifically their geographical implications, only matter as part of our fundamental rootedness in place. Now, there's a philosophical backdrop to this kind of priority on place, as a basic condition of being in the world, which we can't cover here. For Moores, the key point is that media technologies, including locative media, should not be seen as an external spatial order that impacts on some kind of essentialized local place. Instead, we should focus on how such spatialized media are used in daily practice. Media don't impact places from the outside. They are inherently part of how places are made and remade. This is broadly the position taken by Germaine Halegua in her 2019 book, The Digital City. Contrary to notions that digital technologies weaken place specificity, Halegua argues that such media are bound up in what she calls replacing. For Halegua, this describes how people can be immersed in the immediacy of urban everyday life through, rather than in spite of, digital interfaces. She is by no means blind to how social media, for example, acts on urban users. For sure, these platforms nudge, instigate, and channel users' affective experiences. 
But in her book, Halegua unapologetically focuses on how people consciously use locative and other digital technologies to present themselves and their location as part of their urban experience. Her chapter on social media, broadly defined, is interested in how such platforms simultaneously invite users to volunteer or make available their geolocation, meaning their spatial coordinates, and at the same time present their spatial self, meaning their performed identity. What's most important, says Halegua, is that, however precise geolocation may be, it is fundamentally entangled with identity performances, at least in the examples she's focusing on. The focus on performance here echoes the work of authors mentioned earlier, such as Eric Gordon, Jordan Frith, and Adriana D'Souza y Silva, all of whom have approached the relationship between location-based media and self-presentation. Drawing on the work of Irving Goffman and recalling our discussion of personal sound technologies in episode 4, they make the strong argument that using location-based technologies is not a withdrawal from the urban interactional milieu. Rather, it is a means in which we engage urban life anew. Halegua discusses several ways that locative social media and its precursors provide a platform for their users to fuse precise spatial location with performative self-presentation. One set of examples she describes are early urban memory projects from the pre-smartphone era, such as Yellow Arrow in the United States and Murmur in Canada. I once stumbled upon the latter myself many years ago. I was walking through Kensington Market in Toronto and noticed on a telephone pole this green sign in the shape of an ear. It had a telephone number on it, as well as an invitation to hear about here. So I called it on my non-smartphone mobile phone, and suddenly found myself transported back in time, but still at my location, via an anecdote about the coffee shop in front of me. The narrator was describing how they one day happened upon a fire at this coffee shop, and how they stood there watching it, and how the whole event was an impetus for them to reflect on their life in Toronto, and whether it was time to leave. It was interesting, if somewhat disconcerting, to be transported to this strangely personal locative past. Halegua points out that these kinds of urban memory projects are less about memorializing traumatic events, and more about archiving mundane urban occurrences. Occurrences which, in their mundanity, can actually be exclusionary. I, the listener, wasn't there at that time, and I'm not part of the story. And yet, the Murmur Project, and others like it, arguably establish a temporary, collective, locative resource. Halegua seems to put these playful memory projects into contrast with the wave of location announcement social media services that emerged in the early 21st century, such as Dodgeball, Foursquare, Gowalla, and Yelp. Such platforms were less a means for rich representational descriptions or memories of geolocated places, and much more about accessing and generating a feeling of real-time proximity, using affordances such as location pins, tips, and recommendations. These services often included a strong commercial component, such as business ratings, and sometimes also involved gamified participation structures. But still, the wide research on early locative social media shows that users engage with such platforms in a diversity of ways, sometimes to bond or connect with others, sometimes to show off, sometimes to make jokes, and sometimes to use a platform's mechanics as a way of playing life like a game. Since becoming a hotel in 1923, the property has welcomed some of my personal favorite dignitaries, 
including Winston Churchill, Franklin Roosevelt, Nelson Mandela. Oh my God, this is where Chloe posted from. Let's take a selfie. One of Churchill's favorite activities, I think. A less obvious example of locative media discussed by Halegua are selfies. As Halegua notes, selfies tend to be analyzed primarily in relation to questions of bodily display and rarely as a practice of placemaking. And yet, selfies are very often devoted to presenting the self in particular places. They can be read, Halegua says, as, quote, vernacular and creative placemaking performances, end quote. In some cases, Selfies can be a means for claiming temporary ownership of a place at which one might not ordinarily belong. In other cases, selfies can reinforce places as exclusive or inaccessible to others, such as, for example, taking a selfie set conspicuously in a member's club like Soho House. The place-based selfie has become so common that it now arguably verges on stylistic cliché. Halegua describes how this has opened the door to humoristic, place-based Instagram accounts like Socality Barbie, which used Barbie doll-based selfies as a way to satirize, quote, intentional constructions and appropriations of locational capital, the conspicuous consumption of luxury products, and the conspicuous mobility in the performance of place through selfies, end quote. Self-tracking technologies, such as wearables, are for Halegua yet another socially mediated and locative means of performing urban place. Technologies such as smartwatches and their associated apps such as Strava involve very little explicit narration of urban place, or even pinning urban locations. Instead, they involve the ambient tracking of their users' location, movement, and habits. Such ambient tracking of user data, says Halegua, produces new ways of experiencing and engaging with urban place. Perhaps you use self-tracking technologies and services in relation to a weekly jog. It's not so much that the act of tracking encourages you to run more, necessarily, but rather it generates and makes present a recursive record of your run, which can subtly expand your awareness of your route or rotation of routes. Measuring your run using geolocation can invite you to become more strategic or mindful of your route, which in turn can shift your relationship with particular urban places. Not just what these places mean to you, it can also structure proprioception, how your body can, without evident consciousness, sense, move, act, and indeed locate itself. That's it for this episode. In our next, we'll be exploring the apparent rise of what are seen to be novel technologies of urban media, perhaps even new kinds of urban media institutions, namely the platform. So, until then... I'm Scott Rogers, and you've been listening to The Mediated City.